The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So today we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're continuing this series, The Church, What God Has Joined Together. We've got one more week next week, and as we've looked at ecclesiology, what it means to be the church, what it means to be God's people, three weeks ago, Gary talked to us about what is the church? And then two weeks ago, Dave Tate talked to us about where we are now, kind of church history and how we've landed where we are and maybe where we're headed. And then last week, Shannon taught us about the household of God, what it means to be the people of God, to have this koinonia fellowship and love one another. And today, we're going to talk about the church in culture. The church in culture. What does it mean to be the church in culture? So a couple of ways to state... What I hope we'll see when we're done today is this. The church is the visible expression of the kingdom of God on earth while we wait for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. When people talk about the kingdom of God, theologians talk about an already and a not yet. And the already is us really living well under the rule and reign of Jesus as a signpost to this coming kingdom. I was talking to a friend of mine this week who's a a a deacon at one of the village campuses in Dallas, and he said it this way. He said, when the world looks at the church, they should get a glimpse of the way things should be. Culture, every culture, is fundamentally broken because of the fall of Adam. But when the world looks at the church, when they look at what it looks like for a group of people to be living under this reality that Jesus is risen and Jesus is king, they ought to be able to look and go, oh, that's what life should look like. That's what life should look like. So as we move toward 1 Peter 2.9, for this one phrase we're going to hone in on this morning, I want us to intro by walking a little bit through 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, because Peter's writing to churches dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, their little local churches gathered together throughout this pagan culture in the first century. And he says first in verse 1, he's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So they're exiled people, they're in culture, but they're not of culture. He lists the places that they live, but that's not really who they are. The second thing that we'd see is the church has a precious salvation. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. They've got this precious salvation that's their inheritance in Christ. Next thing is that God's people, look down in verse 13, are to be set apart. They're distinct from the culture. They're the called out ones. Verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you or brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't live like you lived before you knew Christ. But as He who called you is holy, also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's people are a called out holy people because He is holy. Next, the church treasures Jesus and the life that He gives, verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, we've got this beautiful and wonderful salvation, and we treasure Jesus because he gave his life to ransom us. Then the church, in verse 22, is a people who love one another deeply, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another deeply or earnestly from a pure heart. We're a people who love one another in a supernatural way. Next, the church has the Word of God and the God of the Word as her compass, her true north. It says in verse 23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. All flesh is like, like grass and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of our Lord remains forever. And this was the good news that was preached to you. Then the church, because of giving of the Spirit, we're going to jump into chapter 2. The church is where the presence of God now dwells on earth. He's beginning to tell the believers what life ought to look like. And then he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, you yourselves are like living stones and being built up as a spiritual house. Now when someone in the first century heard being built up are these living stones into a spiritual house, they're going to think to the temple. They're going to think back to the temple. And he says, Jesus is the chief cornerstone here. And so the temple in the Old Testament is where Israel came to meet with God. All the people would come from throughout Judea, throughout Galilee, and all the earth. They would come to offer sacrifices with God and hopefully meet Him where His presence dwelled. In John chapter 2, Jesus speaking about the temple, He said, you tear this down and I'll raise it up in three days. But He was speaking about the temple of His body, making this audacious claim I am now where the presence of God dwells on earth. It's no longer centered around this building in Jerusalem, Jesus is saying, but it's centered around me. If you want to know God, you look to me, not the temple. Then Jesus dies, raises from the dead, and sends the Spirit into His people. And now when the world wants to look at what the presence of God on earth looks like, It looks to the church, the people. That's why we, Temple Bible Church, don't call this building a sanctuary. We call it an auditorium because it's not a sanctuary. We are the church. We're where the presence of God dwells so that when culture looks to church, they ought to see what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God. So now that we've gone through all that text, we get to our text. 1 Peter 2.9, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, or your, your translation might say aliens and strangers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what we're going to do as we look at this is we're going to look at one specific verse, or one specific phrase in one specific verse here. It's in 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9 And it's this word royal priesthood or this phrase royal priesthood or your translation might say a kingdom of priests. And we're going to ask this question. 
What does it look like to be a kingdom of priests in a world of hurricanes? What does it look like to be a kingdom of priests in a world where calamity is coming and bringing devastation? What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? And there are a couple of ways that this happens. One, this happens when we declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, or as the NIV says, declare his praises. We make disciples. We speak that Jesus is Lord. We tell people about this one for whom he has all authority in heaven and on earth. We make disciples. We baptize. And then we teach them to obey all that he has commanded. We live our lives out in such a way. We display with our words and lives that Jesus is Lord. That's what it looks like to be the church in culture. So when we come into this place, when we come together in a large group, or when we come together in smaller groups, or when we meet together one-on-one, or when our ladies meet at the various times they do throughout the week, or when guys meet with Gary on Thursday morning, we're coming together for resalination. You didn't hear me wrong. I didn't say desalination. That's the process of taking salt out of water to make it fresh. We come together for resalination because we are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its flavor, it's useless. So we gather together to get resalted, if you will, for resalination so that we can then go out and be the salt of the earth so that we reflect what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God while we wait for the kingdom of God. We reflect what it looks like to live together when Jesus is Lord. And this is important for us to think about because in the first century, just like in the 21st century, there were a lot of people waiting for the kingdom of God to come who missed Jesus. They were waiting on the kingdom to come, and the king came, and they missed him. And there wasn't just one group who was waiting on the king to come. There were lots of groups waiting on the king to come, and some of them didn't like each other. I can't imagine what it's like to live in a culture where people can't get along. Oddest deal in the world. One of those groups in the first century, they lived in Qumran. That was outside Jerusalem, and it was in the wilderness. It was in caves. And these people were waiting for the kingdom to come, and they thought, there is no hope for culture. It's just messed up so bad. We'll come and wait. Now, mind you, some of them are not actually waiting on a Messiah, just that the kingdom would come, that life would ultimately turn into a value system that matched theirs. And they could come back into culture where everybody agreed with them. First century, that might look like the doomsday prepper. They're off and hiding and they've got all their supplies and MREs, but they're away from culture. You've got another group or groups, pseudepigraphal writers or zealots, and what they're seeing is that Rome is oppressing them and they are waiting to get free from this oppression. And when the king comes, the Messiah, or when when the kingdom comes, their oppressor Rome will no longer be holding them down. That might be akin to liberation theologies where people look and see the force that's oppressing them and they say, when, when the kingdom of God comes, that will be no more and my people will rule whoever my people is. And the problem with all those groups in the first century and all these groups in the 21st century and all of us sometimes is that, that when you're looking for the kingdom, you can sometimes forget that the greatest evil in the world is not outside of us, but it's inside of us. When we're looking for the king, are we looking for someone to take away evil outside of us? Are we primarily concerned with the evil inside of us? Because Peter doesn't say, you were ransomed from Rome. 
See, they still live under the rule and reign of Rome in a broken culture. But he says you were ransomed by the blood of a lamb. He says you've received mercy because the greatest evil that the people of the kingdom of God understand is the evil inside them that they have been redeemed from. And that's what distinguishes the kingdom of God from those looking for the kingdom that don't find it. So now we are the people of God and people called a royal priesthood by Peter. It's an interesting thing that he does. And one of the things that it's a good idea to do when you see Scripture that's repeated is you kind of ask why. And Peter is making a very clear statement to these churches and he's using Exodus language. And what he's saying to them is just as the Israelites who came out of Egypt were to be a people who were going to bless the nations, so are you. Just as God spoke of Israel, Peter is saying, now he is speaking of the church dispersed throughout the world. How do we know this? Well, look at these words in 2.9. Chosen race, royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Exodus 19. The people have come out. The next chapter of the Bible is them receiving the Ten Commandments. And he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. First Peter 2.9, a people for his own possession. Among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Treasured possession, holy nation, kingdom of priests, chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation. See, he's saying to them, just as Israel had this vocation of blessing the nations, and they disobeyed, and Jesus fulfilled all that God was calling Israel to do to bless the nations, now you, his people, are to bless the nations. So for us, that means it's a theological imperative. It's not just a theological imperative, it's also an eschatological hope. Now you might hear that and think, how did a boy that grew up in Deweyville, Texas, learn those words? Somebody asked me the other day, how did Deweyville, Texas get the name Deweyville, Texas? And I said, and this is true, they wanted to change it from Possum Bluff. That makes, makes sense. Deweyville sounds like a great name now, doesn't it? See, a theological imperative means it's a reality of who we are and what we must be about. It's who God says we are now. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, proclaiming His excellencies. The one who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. A theological imperative means it's what we must do. An eschatological hope means it's what we're waiting for. It's what we're waiting for. We are waiting for the day when Jesus sets all things right. When Jesus comes and ushers in the kingdom finally. And until that day comes, we're to be a signpost to what's coming. Well, how do we know it's an eschatological hope? It doesn't... It's not just a verse that we find in Exodus. It's not just a verse we find in Peter. It's also three times in Revelation. We'll just look at two of them this morning. Revelation 1, when John is praying as this begins, he's speaking about Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest 
to his God and Father, to him be the glory. See, he's made us into a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. And then there's this vision given of the end, and there's this group singing a new song, Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So this is what's coming. This is what's coming. And our life ought to be a reflection of that. Our life ought to be a reflection of that. It's what God would have us do. See, we, through our worship and witness, we co-labor with Christ to reconcile people to God and one another. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus is Lord. And until He comes with our lives and with our words, we show people that. We show people that while we wait for the kingdom to come. So when is the church at her best? When is the church doing this thing? When is she being a kingdom of priests in a world of hurricanes? I think throughout the life of the church, there are these moments when culture is very plainly broken and marred by the fall. And the church looks different. In the first century, there are ways that this was happening. And one of the ways is that the people look different because they didn't say Caesar was king. They didn't call him Lord. They worshiped a Jesus. They had a different king. That's one of the ways the church looked different in the first century. Another way they looked different is that people would come together and when there was an alien or stranger or foreigner among them, they would welcome them in. They had a cup of cold water. They had a pillow for them to lay their head on. They cared for them. The church looked different in the first century because people were divided. Jews and Gentiles were divided. Barbarians and Scythians, they were divided. They hated one another. And Jesus broke down the dividing wall and in a supernatural way, these people came together and they said, we're one new man in Christ. We're a new family in Christ. Another way that the church looked different, even pagan authors wrote about it, is as it related to sexuality. There was a guy named Pliny the Elder, and he wrote about these Christians, and they were just strange, strange people in the first century because they only, like a man would only have sex with his wife, and a woman would only have sex with her husband. They wouldn't have sex with a lot of people, and they wouldn't have sex outside of marriage. And in first century Roman Empire, That was not the norm. It just looked different. Another way that the church looked distinct where they were bringing reconciliation in a a broken culture is that they cared for the poor so much it's even written that there was not one needy among them. And the world took notice. The world took notice. See, these moments when culture is broken or when we have the opportunity to be a kingdom of priests in a world of hurricanes, well, why use that metaphor, hurricane? Because we have been experiencing them, experiencing them lately, um, in case you've been hiding under a rock. There have been a lot. And here's the reality. When we see hurricanes, and these are some that have hit hurricanes and typhoons all over the world, but most recently for us, Harvey and Irma, and most close to home, of course, Harvey, is when we see devastation... We show up. It's what the church does. It's what the church in Central Texas did. It's what the church in America did. It's what TBC did. And listen, pagan authors, atheist writers are saying, look, I don't agree with these Christians, but when the world is hurting, they're the first people that show up and help. 
And here in our community, we had evacuees that stayed here. We got donations that we took to another church as they were receiving them, and they got so many, they couldn't receive all of them at one point. We had so many people wanting to serve, we had to turn people away. It was this beautiful thing. Our local outreach pastor, junior high pastor, Tim Cartwright, he took guys down in boats and, listen, they didn't just rescue people, they rescued a live pig. Does that, that sounds like a great joke. A guy from Philadelphia rescues a pig in a flood in Texas. Just sounds like the start of a good story. We've had people who've gone back. We've got people who will continue to go back. We've given money and will continue to give money. See, when the world is broken, the church shows up to clean up, to rescue, to give relief, to give restoration. It's what we do because the Spirit of God is inside us. We intuitively know that we're there with our words, with our actions, with our prayers, with our pocketbooks. See, it's not just, it's not just these hurricanes, though. There are all kinds of hurricanes that hit. Sometimes a hurricane hits a family. And maybe it's a, a lost job and lost money. Or maybe it's a broken marriage. Or maybe it's a sudden onset of disease or an unexpected death. And the church shows up to give relief, to give comfort, to rescue and to love. And the world takes notice. Oh, that's what it looks like when people are living under the rule and reign of Jesus. Man, I want to be part of that. And so then we have to give a defense for the hope that is in us. See, the church is at her best in response to calamity. In response to calamity. So today we're talking about church and culture and how do we grow as church and culture. And as I've looked over the last several months when we were preparing this study and looked at what some believers who write on culture say and what the scripture says and how we've historically maybe done well and now sometimes are growing weary and by the Spirit's empowering, we can do better. There are five ways or five areas I want to talk about this morning as we consider how to grow as a church and culture. How do we grow as a church and culture? Here are five areas. The first is this. We as a kingdom of priests in a world of hurricanes should speak often and boldly that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is risen. And we should because it's really good news. It's really good news. People love talking about good news. Last Sunday morning and this Sunday morning, all my friends from Oklahoma had really good news about football to share with me. My phone's just blowing up about their good news. I didn't think it was that good news. Listen, God in flesh rose from the dead to give life who, to all who will believe in Him. Like, that's better news than the Astros beating the Yankees, right? That, that is amazing news, and yet it's the only good news that we are sometimes reticent to share. And it just doesn't make any sense. This is the best news in the world. We ought to be boldly and lovingly showing with our lives and with our mouths all the time. And sometimes we've grown weary. Maybe in the shift from Christendom to a post-Christian culture, we've grown weary in our evangelism. And we've got to be boldly proclaiming Jesus is Lord. That's one area of growth where we cannot grow weary and we can do well. Another area where it seems maybe we've grown weary is this. God's people, this kingdom of priests, throughout the Scripture, you can go all the way back to Exodus, throughout the New Testament, into the New Testament, throughout church history, are always called to be loving, caring for, looking out for the alien stranger foreigner among us. 
We're the light of the world, the people God has given the vocation of blessing the nations. Now you might, when you hear that, you might think of news headlines or Facebook rants that people make, and that's not what this is. It's a nuanced conversation. You might wonder, well, what does it look like for us to do that in this culture? I've got questions about that. Well, guess what? I've got questions about that too. But here's what we do. We come together, and I'd, I'd love to visit with you if you've got questions about that. And we look in the Word of God together. We, we know we're the people of God, and Jesus is our King. And so we see, how does the Word direct us to love the, the alien stranger, foreigner among us, to have a cup of cold water, a place for them to lay their head? Because we're the people of God. We're the people of God. Third area, these just get easier as we go along. Third area, we should be a people who are together in ways that the world is not. And so in our culture, once again, there seems to be, and I say seems to be, by that I mean there is this division along racial lines in our culture. And that's, that's not what we're like. The world is like that, just about every culture. But that's not what believers are like because Jesus has broken down this dividing wall that kept us apart. And now we're together, reconciled to God and one another. So Gary and I sat down about two and a half, three weeks ago with an African-American brother in our body, a leader in our community, and we said, we just want to hear from you. We want to hear, number one, how you're processing the events that are going on in our world, in our culture today, along racial lines that are dividing us. Number two, we want to hear, you grew up and you might have had a different perspective. You would have had a different perspective growing up than we did. And this brother very graciously and very kindly and gently shared with us his experience and he shared with us how he's processing it. And it was one of the most eye-opening moments of my life. And I got to tell you, I can't speak for anybody else, but I got to tell you, when as I heard from him, I thought, you know, this is the first step on a really, really long journey for me. This, is, this wasn't just some guy or some people. It wasn't a media personality or celebrity. This was my brother in Christ, who's part of this body, who serves faithfully. And I needed to hear from him, and I still need to hear from him. And if you're an African-American brother or sister in this body, what I want to tell you is I can't speak for anybody else, but I can tell you I know that by the grace of God, I can do way better than I have in this area. If you're hurting, I want to know what it looks like to hurt with you because we weep with those who weep. If you're struggling with how to process things, I want to be in that struggle with you to pray alongside you, to tell you that I love you, to tell you that I'm with you. It's a long journey ahead of me, and I've got a lot to learn. But I want you to know that we are a people who are together in ways that the world is not. And by the grace of God, by the grace of God, we cannot grow weary. And then we can do better. We can do better. So that's three areas. First area is that we can boldly proclaim Jesus. We can boldly proclaim Jesus. Second area is that we can love the alien, stranger, foreigner among us. Third area is that we come together in ways the world does not, where there's racial and ethnic division. We are united in Christ. We've got to be. We've got to love supernaturally. Number four, number four relates to the Word of God and sexuality. We as God's people get our direction from the Word of God. We're not shaped by D.C. or Hollywood, and sometimes we lose track of this. And about a year ago, something came up in our culture that wasn't just Christians saying this, but a Christian teacher saying this. And, and basically the statement goes along these lines. It's not the first time the statement has been made. It's been made decades ago and centuries ago, and it's this, that 
monogamous homosexuality can be called holy and blessed by God. And before I go any further, I feel like there are some disclaimers that I need to give. Sometimes as the church has spoken about homosexuality and same-sex attraction, we've spoken very harshly. Sometimes we've come across as hypocritical because we'd speak plainly about that and not about things like divorce. Sometimes we've been tone deaf. And I've, I've got to tell you, I've, I've never struggled with same-sex attraction. And so if you're here and you do, I cannot imagine just how difficult it must be for you to come in this building on, on Sunday mornings wondering if it's a place for you. But what I can tell you is that there are all kinds of sins that I struggle with every day, every week, every month. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ who come alongside me and they remind me not to grow weary. And by the grace of God, by the Spirit's empowerment, we can, we can fight sin in us. We can struggle against sin in us. So I want you to know if you're struggling in this area, this is a safe place for you to struggle. You can come to me. You can come to one of our other pastors and say, I'm, yeah, I struggle here and I just need help. I know this is not the way it's supposed to be. We'll help you. We'll walk with you. The reality is that, that just like sometimes our harsh words were not helpful, neither is it to say that 2,000 years of Orthodox Christianity is wrong. Neither is it to say that. And I thought, how would I respond to this? But I think there's a better response. As these teachers said what they said, last year a lady who didn't just struggle with same-sex attraction, but had been in a long-standing, committed lesbian relationship before her conversion to Christ said this. She said, if this were 1999 the year that I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community I loved instead of 2016, this author's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like a balm of Gilead. How amazing it would have been to have someone as radiant, knowledgeable, humble, kind, and funny as this person saying out loud what my heart was shouting, yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline of queer theory and English literature and culture and in my church. My emotional vertigo could find normal once again. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited and waited and waited for the Lord to build me back up after he convicted me of my sin and I suffered the consequences. Maybe it would go differently for me than it did for Paul or Daniel or David or Jeremiah. Maybe Jesus could save me without afflicting me. Maybe he could give me a respectable cross or manageable thorns. The author goes on and she says, but today I hear these words. Words meant to encourage, not to discourage. Words meant to build up, not to tear down, to defend the marginalized, not broker unearned power. And a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my neck. If I were still in the thick of the battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, her words would have put a millstone around my neck. Do you hear what she's saying? Her words would have caused me to drown in my own sin. She closes her response with this. To be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. 
Conversion to Christ made me face this question squarely. Did my homosexuality reflect who I am or did it distort who I am through the fall of Adam? I learned through my conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, and let's be honest, when all of us are struggling with sin, sometimes it feels right and good and real and necessary. But it stands against the Word of God. It reveals a particular way Adam's sin marks my life. Our sin nature deceives us. Sin's deception isn't just out there. It's also deep in the caverns of our hearts. How I feel does not tell me who I am. Only God can tell me who I am because He made me and He takes care of me. And in Christ, He says that we are a kingdom of priests set to declare the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness. So even if you're struggling in that darkness, He can call you out to light. And while we love in the midst of struggle and we can do a much better job of how we've spoken about things, about sexuality and everything else, we get our truth from this this reality. Jesus is Lord, and that changes everything. That means a 180 for every one of us in some area of our life. Last one, last one, where the church can grow is, is, is as it relates to how we think about those who've brought calamity on themselves. Maybe it's a, a sin affliction someone's brought upon themselves, or maybe it's something like this. I would tell you to get this person in your mind, but when I start to talk about it, we'll all get a person in our mind. What about those people who brought calamity on themselves? Maybe it's those people that live in that housing, or maybe it's those people who have their addictions, or maybe it's those people who don't have a job. And by all means, we know that always, if you don't have a job, it has nothing to do with the fact that you can't get transportation has nothing to do with maybe you don't have childcare. It's just because you don't want a job and we know it. Or maybe, maybe it's that they have all those kids and maybe it's that those dads are never around and there's all these, all these brokenness things. See, when you hear that, you get a mental picture of, of somebody or, or maybe you're not as broken as I am. Maybe you don't, but I do. And so let's assume for just a moment all that we sometimes assume about those people is correct. Let's say all of our assumptions are right, okay? Well, now now what? Now what? Because here's the most beautiful, wrecking, convicting, painful thing that I've thought about in the last two or three weeks. Jesus came to a people who had brought tremendous calamity upon themselves. And he laid his life down for them. And he rose from the dead to give them a new life. And we are those people. So in case I'm, I'm not clear, what I mean is the person you're thinking about, when you think about those people, the person that comes to your mind, that in your sin, that's who you are, that's who I am. Well, geez, that's offensive, Chase. I agree. I hate thinking about it. But here's the reality in in 1 Peter 2, right after he says, you're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you might declare his praise. He says, you once were not a people, now you're the people of God. You once had not received mercy, you now have received mercy. Now that could be just reminding us of our transformation, but it's reminding us of something more because Peter is quoting Hosea. And specifically, he's quoting Hosea as God speaks about the children of Hosea's unfaithful wife, Gomer, the children of her prostitution. You once were not a people. That's what her 
kid was named. Now you're the people of God. You once had not received mercy. She had a child named No Mercy in her prostitution. And what he's saying is you were the children of Gomer's prostitution. And now you're the people of God. And that is really, really good news. That's the sort of thing that will make a kingdom of priests to declare His praise in the midst of hurricanes. And just like our king, lay ourselves down and give ourselves away to reconcile people who brought calamity on themselves to God and one another. See, that's what the church has always done. In the first century Roman Empire, daughters were expandable. If you didn't want one, you could cast her aside. If you had too many, you could get rid. Some people would raise their daughters up just long enough so they could sell them into slavery. And the church said, no way. No way. They rescued them. They rescued them so much that that's another area where pagan authors taught about how the church looks so different. One author was talking about them and because the church didn't worship Caesar, he called them the atheists. Because they said, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He said, but let me tell you how they love these girls. And I wonder if today, as we treat our daughters as objects sometimes, that we might come alongside people in calamity and, and maybe it's that we say, no way, we're going to love you in the midst of this. Maybe it's we say, abortion is not the way for you. Let us come alongside you. Let us help you parent and care for your children. Let us care about these children both in and out of the womb. Let us care about them when they're hungry. Let us care about them whether their dad is in their home or not in their home. And see, when the church does this, the world takes notice. The world takes notice. First Peter 3 15. But set apart Christ as Lord, or Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone asked for a reason, for the hope that's in you. They were living such distinct lives. People would say, hey, why do you do that? That doesn't look like our life. And they would readily, gently, boldly proclaim that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. And the reason is that the Father had sent him to a people of calamity. And he says to his disciples and his church, even as the Father sent me, so I send you. Well, Father, we thank you that while we were dead in sin, children of wrath, even as the rest, there was a spirit at work in us that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But you made us alive together in Christ, for by grace we've been saved. And you seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, so that in the surpassing, or in the ages to come, when the kingdom finally comes, you might show the surpassing riches of your kindness to us in Christ. We're waiting for that day. You've saved us by grace through faith, God, in the midst of our calamity. And it was a gift so that we can't boast. And now your word says that you have created us for good works in Christ Jesus and you planned in advance that we would do them. So God, in, in a culture and in a world that is profoundly broken by the fall of humanity and the sin of Adam, Lord, help us to be a kingdom of priests in the midst of these hurricanes, reconciling people to you and to one another send us out today lord for your glory and for our joy 
And may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.